where you going? No, man, you got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. Hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. Morning. Have you missed us? We're back. (laughs) And you're watching The Road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic. This is week one of our sabbatical. (laughs) Homeroom is on Rumble. Just go to Rumble and search the channels for The Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. It might mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast, it's easy, it's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technological challenge members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, TwitX, and we're back on YouTube. Well, at least until we get banned well, again. You know. Then you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and eventually BitChute. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. That's uh, roadtoconcord.com. That's where you'll find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at the road to concord.com. He's a little slow, but he says he's going to answer the rest of the emails Hey, I today. did okay. We'll see what happens. We got some good emails, too. Yeah, we did get some e- good emails. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, guys. Uh, if you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them, Joe is an acquired taste. Black Kabe Wasabi. Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. You'll soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. Good morning. Welcome to Worship Wednesday, the uh, worship section of the road to Concord. Hey, uh, we're going to be doing part two of the um, prophetic language here in just a few minutes. But real quick, just so that you'll know, you know, we're not going anywhere on Wednesdays. We're still here. Those of you who were used to seeing us all five days of the week, um, I... Just real quick housekeeping before we get going for today. I got more done yesterday for my business than I've been able to do usually in a week's worth of time. So I'm already starting to think about how to bring the show back. When we do, it's just going to be Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We're going to no Tuesday and Thursdays. And we'll change the change the formatting just a little bit. And we'll we'll give you all in and you know tips on that and let y'all know as we get going. But hopefully. By the end of March, we'll at least be back to two days a week or thereabouts, and then we'll pick it back up and go from there. So I gotta, I got gotta take this time, this sabbatical, to catch up on what I need to get done, and then Charlie's doing the same thing, and we'll get our world all balanced back out. But in the meantime, I will be focusing on our Wednesday shows big time. And that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna go back to um, this is part two of the prophetic language. And one of the reasons that I think some people don't see a prophetic language in the Bible, in the prophets, is because there's so much symbolic speech in Scripture already. They don't realize that there are certain things that are peculiar to the prophets alone. That's what we're going to be focusing on. Now, last week, I gave you some homework to do. I don't know whether or not you did it. This is the road to Concord. I will update the title later, part one through whatever. But for now, I had given you um, a couple of things I wanted you to do. Not that one. I wanted you to read through this. This was um, 
it was right here was the understanding of the prophets. That was this blog page. What is a prophet and all of that? I'm hoping and I'm assuming you've done that. If you haven't, shame on you. You didn't do your homework. And then I wanted you to read through this PDF that was posted up there. That's the one that's right here. This PDF right here that I'm moving. That's on recognizing that there are signs in the prophets of prophetic language. And this is from uh, Ellis Schofield. It was a four page and it's actually notes. He posted this. It's These are actually his notes from when he did, uh, when he would do speech, speaking engagements at um, different churches. So I shared that with you because I wanted you to go through that. You'll have homework today too. But for now, as I go through this, I'm going to assume you've done your homework. Because if you don't, I can't help you. That's up to you. If you're going to deal with the prophets, you must study. You're not going to get the prophets if you're not willing to put in some time. So let's get going. The prophetic language part two. Look, I made some standardized slides. I think that's kind of cute. Before we begin, we need to remember who the prophets were. They are the spokesmen of Yahweh, of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we have to remember what their mission was. Primarily, their mission is to rightly divide and teach the word of Yahweh, also known as guard or keep the word of Yahweh. Okay? That's important. It's not about foretelling the future. That's not the number one job of a prophet. And we have to remember that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of prophets. And prophets, is, there are female prophets in the Bible. But we have just a handful of them that they we have their writings that remain. So as such, prophets will mainly focus, given their mission, they're mainly going to focus on Yahweh, his Torah, his, his teachings, and his kingdom. If you do not have this frame of mind and reference in your head when you're reading the prophets, you're going to introduce things into their reading that doesn't belong there because that's not what they're worried about. Okay, you also have to understand they're writing from a pre-Christ, pre-Messiah period of time. This is before the cross. Also, Keep in mind to whom the prophet is speaking and the message he has been sent to deliver. Like Isaiah and Jeremiah primarily speak to the house of Judah. Hosea speaks to the house of uh, Israel. Zechariah, I'm all but convinced, is speaking to the house of Israel and what we would think of as the church age. He's talking to the people in the millennial. But that's that's a different, you know, we'll get to that. And if, once you start understanding the prophets a little better, you're going to understand that some of what we think we know about eschatology, you know, the end times, definitely out of whack. So the audience and the purpose are important to properly understand the prophecy that's being given. Got to keep that. That's context. That's greater context. Always keep these things in mind when reading and studying the prophets. Always. Okay. It's important. Oh, by the way. <laughs> the Psalms are very prophetic in nature. Most people miss this. But who wrote most of the Psalms? Charlie, who, who wrote most of our Psalms? David. And is David a prophet? Uh, yeah. So what are we going to get out of David? Mm. Prophecy. Prophecy. Yeah. And if you're watching carefully when you're reading Moses, you get prophecy from him as well. Also, real quick, as an aside, thanks, Charlie. 
one other thing that's prophetic in nature that I didn't put into the slideshow. I just wanted to, but I forgot to do it. Um, blessings. Blessings in character, nature. A lot of times a blessing is going to give you the character or nature, and it's connected to names. It's going to give you the character nature of the person and of the people who come from that person, their offspring. So Ephraim has has a certain prophetic nature. Like Ephraim is a trained heifer. He likes to thresh. He likes to work. So guess what? Everybody who's descended of Ephraim is going to be very industrious and have a lot of material wealth usually in general as a people. They're also militarily strong. So things like that are going to be um, in their nature. Um, uh, Dan is a serpent in the way. Well, you're going to see his his mark and his trail wherever Dan's people go throughout history. And this has borne out. We see these things. This is one of the reasons that we think we see cycles in history, uh, the history of Yahweh's people and in the scriptures. But like Charlie points out, it's better to think of it as a sine wave. But it is repetitious in nature. That's part of prophecy, folks. Prophecy is a much bigger thing than most of us. What was that? Charlie is trying to be Charlie, but says, uh, does their message come from a clear revelation of God's will or from where? Yes, Mr. Holt. Usually the prophets get their message directly from Yahweh, from God, Um, especially when it's dealing with the future. Almost always a prophet is given a vision of the future while standing in the presence of either Yahweh himself or one of his uh, divine messengers, what we would call an angel, like with Daniel, when he's given some of his visions of the 70 weeks. There are two two or three characters talking to Daniel there, and one of them, I'm almost positive, is uh, the Messiah, is Jesus, Yeshua. Um, another one is Michael, I think, and another one may, may, isn't named, but may well be Gabriel. But Daniel is probably some of his visions. He's in the divine council. He's, he's standing in the council. Um, Ezekiel stands in the council, the heavenly realm council with all the different, um, angels that are part of God's court. So usually the, the prophets that we have in our scriptures have, most of them have spoke to God face to face to Yahweh or to the Messiah one in one way, form, shape, or another. So let's get going. Here's where I want us to go first. First, we need to determine whether you are dealing with a regular biblical language, figure of speech, or prophetic language. Like I said, they're not, they can seem similar. They can seem very similar. So we got to be careful. What are we dealing with? Just because you're not reading a prophet, you know, you're reading Moses or Chronicles. That doesn't necessarily mean you don't have some prophecy in that book. And just because you're reading the prophets doesn't mean the prophet isn't using normal, what we would think of as biblical language. Remember, we've covered this before. Regular language in your Bible is going to include idioms, similes, metaphors, euphemisms, personification, et cetera, et cetera. The the, the meaning for each of these many different figures of speech in the scriptures It's not always easy to discern from the text itself. Oftentimes, you need to glean the meaning from the context or seek expert scholarly assistance in other books and other cited references and sources outside of your Bible. Um, Like I was talking to Charlie before the show started today, when you're dealing with the prophets, 
whether you like it or not, and I think I put this in one of the slides that's coming up, you have to study them for long enough, and I do mean a length of time and in depth until you slowly start thinking a little bit like they do before some of their language starts to click. And before the end of today, you'll, you'll start seeing what I'm talking about. They're going to use what we would think of as normal church or Bible language, Old Testament Bible language, Hebrew idioms and figures. They're going to use that normally. They'll incorporate, incorporate it into their prophecies and their writings, but they also have certain pieces of speech that are unique only to the prophet, prophetic language. You won't find it, at least I haven't, can't remember anywhere I've found it in the normal, you know, the, uh, the historic books of the Bible. So an idiom, we're going to start here. An idiom is a, it's a speech form or an expression of a given language that is peculiar to itself grammatically or cannot be understood from the individual meaning of its elements as, uh, as it keeps tabs on. Um, one of my favorite idioms, examples of an idiom in the English language in America, in America, is drop the bomb. You're the bomb. Well, if you're from my generation, that's a good thing. Or like if you're from my parents' generation, it's groovy, man. You know, that's not a bad thing either. But if you're telling somebody today, oh, you're the bomb in America, you know, oh, well, you're, you're a retro geek, you know, you're Gen X or, or if you're in the Middle East, that's an argument. So I'm not the bomb, you're the bomb. No, you're the bomb. No, you're the bomb. You know, whatever. It's figures of speech that if you're reading through them, don't mean what the plain meaning of the words mean. Okay. You've got a lot of those in your Bible, folks. And if you don't learn the Hebrew a little bit, what's going on there, the culture, you're going to miss it. An example of an idiom, hide your face. It means to refuse to answer. Psalm 102, verse 2. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. This is David crying out to Yahweh. He says, don't hide your face from me. Don't refuse to answer me in the day of my distress when I'm in, in trouble and, and upset. Incline your ear. Listen to me, please, Yahweh. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. We'll say, Joe, that's got, it doesn't say that that's what yet is. That's Hebrew parallelism right there. That's a chiasm. Hide your face. Answer me speedily. In the day of my distress, incline your ear. That's a form of Hebrew parallelism there. It's also a chiasm. It's A-B-B-A. It, it, it may not look like it, but this is a case of once you study it and you've immersed in the culture, once you're starting to learn their culture, that's Hebrew poetry right there. And most of the Psalms are. They're poetry set to music. They're songs. And that's what we have. And it to hide your face means to not answer somebody, to refuse to answer. Another idiom is going to be ears are uncircumcised. That means to refuse to listen. Jeremiah 6.10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of Yahweh is to them as an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. It's not that they cannot hear you. It's that they don't want to hear you. So this is a case of la, 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 la. I don't want to hear you. I'm not listening. And that's what it means to have uncircumcised ears. Well, if we read that today, what do you mean circumcised ears? Ears don't have foreskin. How can I cut the foreskin off your ears? 
that's what happens when you read literally. But if you don't understand what the euphemism means, how are you going to understand what uncircumcised ears mean? Well, if you're reading the greater context of this passage and of several others where you'll find this saying, you can kind of get the gist. This is one where you, you'll, if you're paying attention, you're not just reading through it to get through it. You'll get the idea of what that idiom means. Other places, not so easy. How about a good eye or an evil eye? Well, that means to be gender, generous or stingy. This is Deuteronomy 15.9 versus Proverbs 22.9. Okay? In Deuteronomy 15.9, if you have a good eye, it means you're generous. Proverbs 22.9, if you're stingy, if you have an evil eye, it means you're stingy. You don't want to give money, you know, give things to the poor. That's not going to be a good eye or an evil eye. You know, well, that means that the good eye means, you know, you're a good person. Evil eye means you hexed him or you vexed him, right? I give you my evil eye. That's not, that might mean what it means in our culture today, but it's not what it means in the scriptures. So if your eye is good or your eye is clear, it means you're generous. If your eye is stingy, you know, if your eye is um, evil or, or bad or wicked, or it's talking about your generosity. It means you're not very generous, you're stingy, you're greedy. And that's one that you have to read a lot of the scriptures because it's not clearly defined. But as you understand what you're looking at, whenever you run into this saying, this idiom, you, you will find that. It does say that in the scriptures. How about a metaphor? It's a figure of speech in which a word or a phrase that ordinarily des designates one thing is used to designate another, thus making an implicit comparison as in Sea of Troubles. We have lots of metaphors in the Bible. One example of a metaphor, Psalm 23.1, Yahweh is my shepherd. I will, not, I will not be in need. Is God really a shepherd? No, not in that sense. He, he, he does, we're not really sheep. He's not really the shepherd. It's a metaphor to, to teach how he treats us and how, how to look at him and how to deal with him and how the relationship is between us in one way, one form. Another metaphor we can find in Isaiah 64, 8. But now, Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. See, there's two metaphors there. Yahweh as our father, and Yahweh as the potter, and you as the thing he makes. So he's our shepherd, our father, and the potter. These are all metaphors to help us understand the relationship and the nature of, of Yahweh, our Elohim, and our relationship with him. Another metaphor is Psalms 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's a metaphor for what the word is. It's a, it's a, a lamp. It, it lights up your, your way, your, your path that you're walking. It tells you the way that you need to, the life that you're supposed to live. A very well-known metaphor in the New Testament. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Well, all three of those are in Psalm 119 and Deuteronomy 32. They come from there, and all three of them talk about Torah. The, the word of Yahweh is the truth. The word of, you know, so it's the truth. The word of Yahweh is a light, which is what we're reading here, Psalm 119, 105, and a lamp. And I am the life. Well, that's from Deuteronomy 32. And it talks about if you follow the truth, 
You're going to keep the word of Yahweh, the Torah, the teachings of the Father, and it'll lead to life. It's a metaphor. In a lot of ways, Yeshua is, Jesus is a symbolic uh, uh, flesh symbolism of Yahweh's teachings. So this, this way of trying to get a hold of his people that Yahweh uses in his, through his prophets and his language throughout the whole Bible, but also in the prophets especially, he's trying to use multiple ways to talk to us. Because some of us will understand intellectually, some of us will only understand physically, materially, some of us a little bit of both. So Yahweh is trying to flesh this out and fully explain himself to us. Then we have euphemisms. This is all normal language in your Bible. This is from front to rear, Genesis to the end of Revelation. The prophets use it too. A euphemism, a mild, indirect, or vague term for one that is considered harsh, blunt, or offensive. Ah, I picked you a good one for this. The nakedness of your father means your father's wife, naked wife. What? Leviticus 18.7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. How many of y'all remember the passage of Noah? Ham goes in and defiles his dad. And his two brothers go in later into the tent and see the nakedness of their father. So they go in backwards and cover the nakedness of their father with a, with a blanket. It's not Noah. It's Noah's wife, their mother. There was incest going on there. Now, don't automatically assume either that that meant that Noah's wife did that voluntarily. There are a lot of times when rape is implied in the scriptures, but it doesn't call it that. Um, we'll, we'll get into that later, but this is what's going on. And then if you cover the rest of Leviticus 18 in there, it tells you the nakedness of your brother is his wife, the, the nakedness of this and that. And to uncover means to, to uncover, to, to sh reveal the nakedness. To cover the nakedness would be to cover it up. Idiom. Metaphor, all sorts of different euphemism in this case. Here's another one, to cover his feet. That means to relieve himself in this particular case. This is 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 24, 3. It says, and he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. See, Joe, that's got nothing to do with his feet. Ah, uh -uh. NASB translation says to relieve himself, go to the Hebrew. The Hebrew says he went in to cover his feet. He went into the cave because he had to, you know, urinate. But he went into the cave so that nobody would see his nakedness to cover his feet. Feet is a euphemism for male genitalia in the Bible. So what he's doing, he's going in there so that you don't, you know, nobody else could see what he was doing. So what does it mean to uncover his feet? Ah, is this a reference to male genitalia? Ruth, chapter 3, verse 7. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was cheerful, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she, Ruth, came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. 
Now, if you go to Leviticus 18, 7 through 17, like I said, to uncover your nakedness means to, to reveal it. To uncover your feet would be male genitalia. So if you research into this one, you're going to find a lot of believers say, no, 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 this is, there's nothing sexually immoral going on here. Ruth just went in and laid down at his feet. There's a problem with that. Ruth's very presence on the threshing floor is sexually immoral. This is why Boaz was so concerned with getting rid of her in the morning before the men woke up and saw her. They would think she's a prostitute. Because the only women that would go up to the threshing floor at this time of year when, they're, when the men are threshing were prostitutes. Because it was a time of celebration. Boaz had eaten and drunk. So he could be a little tipsy, a little drunk. So it's a time of celebration. When um, Judah has relations with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, or I think it's Tamar, isn't it? Um, that's after the sheep shearing. That's another time of celebration. So the prostitutes tended to be around then too as part of the celebration, part of the revelry. So for Ruth to go to the threshing floor is sexually immoral to begin with. What she probably did was lift up Boaz's garments and spooned with him. It was a proposal of marriage. She was um, telling him, hey, let's get married. You know, I, I want to marry you. I want you to marry me, whatever. And if you know the story, the, the very next thing Boaz does is goes and takes care of that and redeems her, marries her. But now, if you don't think there was anything sexually going on here, what happens immediately before Ruth goes to the threshing floor? Her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, gets her all gussied up, tarted up, looking pretty. Well, if there's nothing sexually going on here, why is that happening? And don't forget, just because she's one of the four women listed in the uh, lineage of Yeshua, Jesus, the other three have a history of sexual immorality. Uh, I've forgotten her name again there, Charlie. I know we've got Tamar. She messed around with her father-in-law. And then Rahab? Rahav, yeah. Rahav, Rahav. She's the prostitute that protects the, the spies. And then we're going to have Ruth. And then we, we also have, also have um, Bathsheba. So she's an adulteress, a harlot. So we have four, and most, uh, and, and by all accounts, all four of these female figures are probably non-Hebrews. Uh, uh, you know, at the time, they're not of God's people at that time. They're, they're Canaanites or, you know, Philistines or somebody else. It's Gentiles. So that's also, if you're a, if you're a Orthodox observant Jew, when you come across the Jesus's lineage, you're like, he can't possibly be the Messiah. Look at all these unclean Gentile women in his, well, that's exactly what Yahweh says is going to happen in his prophetic word that he's going to save the Gentiles as well. Well, here's here, getting back to the symbolic language, uncover his feet more than likely references that this is why when, uh, Moses is almost killed because he forgot to have his son circumcised. Well, what's his wife do? She circumcises the son and throws the for her son's foreskin at Moses's feet. No, 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 not his feet, feet, probably at his genitalia. Said, hey, you should have done this. So uh, the, the, the angels that fly around in Ezekiel, six wing, you know, six wings, three pair of wings, they cover their feet with one set of wings. Why do you need to cover your feet? But I could see why you'd want to cover your genitalia, you know. 
So the prophetic language in your Bible is going to include all of that, but it's also going to include imagery, typology, and symbolism that's unique to the prophets. Okay. This is what we're starting to get to today. This is where I wanted us to go. I'm trying to go slow, but you guys know me by now. Unlike regular figures of speech in scripture, the meaning of the prophetic imagery and symbolism is almost always defined by the prophets. The key here is to look for the prophet's definition, then hold to that definition unless and until it's changed by a later prophet. Hint, it's seldom if ever is. Now, what's going to happen here is if one prophet comes along and he defines a term, unless Yahweh tells him it's okay to change it, he will use the next prophet will use the term of the first. So the very first prophet, Moses, maybe. If he's using a term, you're going to find John in the book of Revelation using the same meaning for that term in the prophetic language. And the easiest one here to show you, John in the book of Revelation is going to use a lot of the prophetic meaning from Daniel. It hasn't changed. So John doesn't change the meaning of those prophetic terms. And we're going to cover some of those before we get done with today. But you have got to learn when you're dealing with prophetic symbolism versus just normal, normal, you know, Bible language stuff. So, however, the prophets often, like I said, that this is the slide I told you, they often incorporate biblical figures of speech into their prophetic messages. If a believer is not careful, this can lead them to assign prophetic meaning to these otherwise normal biblical figures of speech. This has been the source of much misunderstanding and division within the body. Therefore, we here at the Road to Concord urge a great deal of caution when dealing with the prophetic language. Reverence, folks. Reverence, fear, and respect. Before we look at any of these specific imagery or symbolism in the prophetic language, let's look first at some of the ways the prophets use normal biblical figures of speech that are often mistakenly assigned a different prophetic meaning. For example, Egypt. It means sin and bondage, especially physical bondage. You'll find this in Exodus 22, for chapter 20, verse 2. I am, I forgot to change this, I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, bondage. Okay. Um, this is also parallelism, brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. Those are parallel thoughts. So right here, Yahweh defines Egypt symbolically in the prophetic language, also the regular language. See, the prophets are using this. This is from the book of Exodus. This is not prophecy right here. This is a recounting of history. But the prophets will grab hold of this normal Bible language and use it in a prophetic way. Babylon, it means confusion and religious apostasy. You'll see this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, as compared with Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. How the faithful city, this is Jerusalem, has become a whore, a, a, a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness, lodged in her, but now murderers. Babylon. So the faithful city, Jerusalem, also Zion, the spiritual city, has become a whore. Whore is apostasy. See, so this is, this is symbology within symbology. 
you have many biblical symbolic meanings going on here, but this passage here is from the prophet. See, the prophet is using this, but Babylon is defined in, in Genesis, Genesis as, as, as confusion. And the stories um, in um, the historic writings from when the southern kingdom is uh, exiled to Babylon and then returns, that's, that's where the idea of apostasy and religious, um, religious slavery, you know, religious bondage, you're caught up in, a, in an apostate religion. That's where that idea comes from. So this is a perfect case of a normal biblical symbol or idea or symbolic language being incorporated by the prophets. Also, you have another example of a normal figure of speech, walk. That's your conduct or your behavior. Again, from Exodus 16.4. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. This is the manna. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not, my Torah, in my teachings, whether they will live according to the way I want them to live. That's what the walk means. And, and that's the way. That's all the same thing. The way would be, is your walk, is your daily life in accordance with Yahweh's teachings, the way. Another one, there would, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. The way, Psalm 25, four through five. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths, your walk. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God or Elohim of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Teach me your way. That's when people ask me, what denomination are you, Joe? I tell them, I, I'm a follower of the way, the ancient ways. And the path, the path is going to be your walk. You walk down a path, right? Show me your path so that I may walk. Live the way you teach me. This is normal language, but it will be in the prophets. Psalms is prophetic in nature. Now, let's look some figures of speech specific to the prophetic language. We'll start with typology. Typology is the study of systematic classification of types that have characteristics or traits in common, or a theory of doctrine of types as in scriptural studies. An example of a type in scripture, Noah is a type of Moses in that he leads the remnant, just him and seven other people, through the water to a new beginning. Moses takes them through the Red Sea into a new beginning. They're starting over. It's a type. Types are not always the, the tightest thing in the world. They're kind of, like I tell you sometimes, it's okay to think loosey-goosey with Scripture. It's just supposed to associate the idea, the general thought. So in this case, Noah is a type of, of Moses. And some of all the people that I'm going to show you today are all types of Yahweh. Who was it that brought him out of Egypt? Wasn't Moses, it was Yahweh. He says so. But yet there was Moses. So if Moses is a type of Yahweh bringing him out of bondage and into, you know, into a new beginning, then so Noah rather is a type of Yahweh bringing the people out of so, see see how this works? You're going to find typology in your Bible quite a lot. Another type is Abraham is a type of Yahweh. Abraham is the spiritual patriarch or father for all those who will choose to follow Yahweh and his Messiah. Well, didn't we read a passage already where it says Yahweh is our father? So you see, in this sense, Abraham is a type of Yahweh. Moses is a type of Christ. 
He not only leads his people to freedom, you know, Yeshua sets you free, but he's also a lawgiver and a judge. Well, I got a little newsflash for you. Jesus is also your lawgiver and a judge. So Moses is a type of Christ and Christ is a type of Yahweh. So Noah is a type of Moses is a type of Christ, which is a type of Yah. This is all typology. David is a type of Christ. He's the king. The king over Israel of the kingdom of Yahweh. Okay. Um, this is where we're going to get into the specific prophetic language. Now, on Thursdays, <clears throat> especially while we're dealing with the prophets, I don't have two-hour classes for you. We're specifically doing this study of the prophets in smaller little chunks. So what we're going to do is we're about to take our break now. When we come back, we'll be a little longer segment, but I'm going to get you into some of the very specifics of, of biblical symbology that seems to be, to the best of my ability to find it, unique to the prophets. Only the prophets use these terms and these symbols this way. So when we come back, we're going to do some of that. Um, and then we'll see if we have any questions on the board that need to be answered. But we're going to take our break right now. And when we come back, I want to get into the stuff that the, most people really want to see. Trust me, some of this is cool. Then I'll give you a homework assignment and discuss next week, and we'll be done until next week's class. See you in six. Don't go anywhere. Be back here in the pew, six minutes.
if you're not reading along in Facebook, there's a conversation going on in there that I'm not going to bring to the show because I don't want YouTube finding an excuse to ban us again. But Water Jug made a comment that, um, like Mike Farmer said, it's exactly how things get twisted. Um, it, it, it led me to, before we get going again, real quick, when you're dealing with something like the profits, be mindful of, um, if you're dealing with this outside of personal study, let's say you're in a, in a Sunday school class or a, a study group, be mindful of the, the spiritual maturity of the people in the group. Some folks are not going to be mature enough to actually grasp and understand and deal with your level of understanding. And a case in point is in the story that's going on here in the, in the Facebook feed, there was somebody in a Sunday school class that took offense to the idea of feet being a euphemism for male genitalia. Well, it is in the old Testament. That's clear. That's it. That's easy. But in the case of um, certain other things that go on in scripture, she, she took offense to it because in this case, it was a, an example in scripture where it's literally just talking about somebody's feet, you know, the end of their legs. But it would have made for a very uncomfortable image in her mind. She just wasn't mature enough to understand what was going on there. Right. And what, one of the things, and I just posted this comment as well, that like euphemisms and figures of speech that you're talking about here are generally language specific. Mm -hmm. So when you go from the Hebrew of the Old Testament to the Greek of the New Testament, those do not necessarily cross, cross over. And a lot of times that's where a translator has to, uh, you know, use different words to explain those figures of speech and things like that to the audience in the new language. Which is why that passage when for, from First Samuel says to relieve himself rather right. than to uncover. Exactly. All right, folks. So let's get going again. And yes, um, Charlie was dancing. He can't resist. So now let's look at the sim symbolism in the prophetic language. This, this is part where most people, most believers really want to get into things. So real quick, a couple of definitions. Symbolism, the practice of representing things by means of symbols or of attributing symbolic meaning or significance to objects, events, or relationships. Symbolic representation. And imagery, a set of mental pictures or images, the use of vivid or figurative language to represent objects, actions, or ideas. An example of symbolism in the scripture, when Jeremiah smashes the clay pot, this is symbolic of the southern kingdom being shattered and broken to pieces, the kingdom of Judah. It's, it was going to happen, so he goes and smashes the pot to show him what's about to happen to the kingdom. Uh, I don't know what I did with it, but I had another slide in here. If, if you're familiar with the prophet Hosea, he is told by Yahweh to go marry an adulteress, an unfaithful bride. Why? Because that's symbolic of the apostasy of the northern kingdom, the house of Israel who Hosea was sent to prophesy to. So you're going to find a lot of this symbolic um, physical representation in the prophets. Um, there was, is it, um, is it Daniel that has to bury the belt and it gets all dirty or whatever? It, all of these things that they're doing, when you're reading the prophets, you see them doing some things that in our world, they're like, what the heck? Well, in their culture, it's symbolic. They're symbolically, that through their actions, they're talking to the people that, you know, in another way, they're trying to reach. This is just another form of trying to explain the message to the people that they're trying to reach. So in truth, 
most of the language of the of specific to the prophets is symbolic in nature. You know, it's what we call apocalyptic language. However, there are certain words and images which are especially important to understanding the prophets. I or we refer to these particular symbols as the prophetic imagery or prophetic language. Now let's look at symbols in the prophetic language. It's symbolism in the language that is very specific to the prophets. An example of this symbolism is the sea or waters, especially tumultuous waters, you know, like from a storm. That equals peoples, multitudes, the unruly masses, lawlessness. This is the Gentile world. You see this in Revelation 17, 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. All right, right here. Spend a little time here today. The waters, the sea, which you saw. This is John seeing in his vision. The prostitute sits on those people, on those waters. They are peoples different Gentile nations, different people groups, you know, like Frenchmen and Englishmen and Russians and Chinese, and their multitudes, their masses, their nations, which could also be Gentiles, and their languages, tongues. This is not speaking in tongues as in ooga, ooga, booga, booga. Sorry to my Pentecostal friends, but languages and tongues in the scripture, always they're always mean known languages, languages that human beings, societies, and civilizations speak. And that's what it means by the nations and the tongues. Notice how the, 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 even, even in the Greek or translated into the English, you have parallelisms, peoples and multitudes, nations and languages. That's parallelism within this prophecy here to, to help define all of this stuff. The sea, the waters, peoples and multitudes, especially the lawless, unbelieving masses. And what's nice about this scripture, and you find this often with the prophets, this, this particular verse defines this imagery oh the prophets almost always divine they, they will define show you their what, imagery. what it is so you've got to yeah. look for those definitions which is something that the rest of the scriptures don't do this is why we call this the prophetic language the, the up till now very very little of what i've shown you does it say that's what this means okay the prophets will tell you what it means and in most cases it's an angel telling the prophet what it means. The, the angel or the messenger of Yahweh is translating or interpreting the vision, not the dream, the vision for the prophet. So the symbolism is being defined, and the prophet faithfully records it for us, for posterity. And that's one of the ways you know that is a clear indication you're dealing with the prophetic language because the prophet defines it for you. Um, case in point, real quick, um, when Peter as his vision of the sheet. He defines what that meant. Well, so that I can eat anything I want. That's not what Peter said. Peter said that the vision meant Gentiles are no longer considered unclean. Peter says this. You just got to keep reading. So when we come along and we say, well, no, it means I can eat whatever I want. Well, you're going against what Peter told you that vision meant. So this isn't a case of, well, that's your interpretation, Joe. Peter tells you what the vision meant. Peter, the guy who had the vision, tells you what the vision meant. Your argument is not with my opinion. Your argument's now with Scripture. And my Mormon friends pay attention to this in Ezekiel 37. Keep reading. Yes. It defines it. 
Yes, he does. So the prophets will define these things for you if you're looking harlotry. Harlotry in the prophetic language is apostasy. So a prostitute is a harlot. Uh, an unfaithful wife is, is going to be considered harlot. Fornication, harlotry. Isaiah 1, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness, once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Okay, faithful city has become a prostitute. The faithful religious kingdom of Yahweh has become apostate. She was full of justice, full of my Torah. My Torah, righteousness, once dwelt in her, but now lawlessness, murderers, evil, wickedness, harlotry and apostasy. Another one, um, Jeremiah 3, 6. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to me in the days of King Hosiah, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every leafy tree, and she prostituted herself there. So what's actually going on in the high hills and the leafy trees? Pagan worship to other gods. This is the Ashtarapol. This is Moloch worship. This is Baal worship. So what he says is faithless, apostate Israel, house of Israel. This is not all Jews. This is the house of Israel in this chapter of Jeremiah. Because later on, it says, have you seen what faithless Judah did? She's worse than her sister Israel. So that's personification. Israel is one sister, Judah is another. But he's talking about how the northern kingdom prostituted herself, became apostate. The harlot is always apostasy in the prophetic language. Always. A beast. A beast is a kingdom, a government, or a political power. Daniel 7.23. This is what he said. This is a messenger, an angel. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and trample it down and crush it. Now, here's where we got to do a little thinking. In the ancient times, a king was associated with the kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar could say, I am Babylon. And he's right. Caesar is Rome while he lives. But does Rome live on past Caesar? Yes, to the next Caesar and to the next and then to emperor, et cetera, et cetera. Was there a king in Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. Was there a king after Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. So the kingdom, the beast, is not the king, but the kingdom. However, sometimes in a normal figure of speech from the ancient days, it can refer to the kingdom as the king or the king as the kingdom. We don't do that too much in the United States because we don't have king. But if I was in England and I talked about the crown, what am I talking about? You're talking about the king or the queen or, or the government. Oopsie. And we do associate government with nationality. So if you're used to having a monarch, then talking about the crown is the same thing as government is the same thing as your nation, your kingdom, especially in the United Kingdom. You know, the sun never sets because it's global. Be careful with this. 
in the prophetic language, a beast is a kingdom, a government, a political power, not the Antichrist, folks. A horn. A horn can be, you got to pay attention to context here. It can be a king, a kingdom, or strength. It can be symbolic of strength. Daniel 7, 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them. And So how many horns? Actually, eleven. And he will be different from the previous ones and will humble three kings. Horns, in this case, are kings. They can also be power, symbolic of strength and might. They can also be, represent a kingdom, but very rarely. Usually, you're talking about a person. And a, a king or a leader when you're talking about a horn or strength and power. A mountain. That is also a kingdom or a power, usually political and or religious. Most of the time, a mountain is, is both. It's a religious political system. Isaiah 2.2. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. The mountain of the house of Yahweh, the kingdom of Yahweh. How do you know that, Joe? Do you know where this passage comes from? This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, folks. What happens to the statue? It's destroyed by the stone that's cut out without human hands that grows to be a mountain that covers the whole earth. It's the kingdom of Yahweh. Now, stop. Read this very closely. Let me give you a foretaste of what we're going to do next week. Isaiah 2.2. Now, it will come about in the last days, the latter days. Yeah, Charlie, pop your microphone on because your Mormon friends need to start paying attention. The latter days. Is this the end times or is this the latter days, last days? Uh, we're in the end times actually now. Yeah, but that's not what Isaiah is talking about here. No, no. He's talking about the period that we know of as the church age from yes. the ascension. Yeah, because Daniel tells us the last days is the final period in history, right? So this era, this area here that Isaiah is talking about comes before that. Yes. So this is like all the times before we the days of the patriarchs, the days of uh, Noah, the days of Adam, you know. This is the last days. This is the last epoch. Remember what Yeshua tells us? I will be with you even until the end of the age. So in other words, this is the last age. Yes. Okay. This is kingdom language here. The mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains. So what we got here, don't we, is that we're going to have the, the kingdom of Yahweh as the chief of all other kingdoms. A mountain is a kingdom. P political. So the kingdom of Yahweh will exist at the same time as other governments and kingdoms. But if we're talking millennial age, there are no other kingdoms because the book of Revelation says the nations are no more. What's this tell us here, Charlie? It tells me that we're in the millennium right now. Yes. We have been since the ascension. That's what that tells us right there. If you understand the prophetic language, that's exactly what he's telling us. And it will be raised above the hills and all the nations that will stream to it. What does Zechariah say? That in the millennial age, all the other nations will come to the mountain of the house of Yahweh? To the temple? Oh, yeah. Where's the temple now? 
body of believers, all the Gentiles will flock to the house of Israel and be grafted in. It, this passage does not tell us that the other nations will go away. The difference is you got to know the prophetic language. Once you understand that the mountain is a kingdom or a government, nation, there you go. He, Isaiah is telling us that the kingdom of Yahweh will coexist with these other nations, exactly like Zechariah tells us. Does that help any there, Charlie? Oh, yeah, quite a bit. And all we have to do is understand what mountain means in the prophetic language. Okay, let's go to the next one. A city, or in this case also a woman, is a spiritual kingdom, always. Either Yahweh's or Satan's. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. A city can be Satan's kingdom. In the case of Yahweh's, Matthew 5.14, Yeshua tells us, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Parallelism. You're the light of the world. You can't be hidden. You're a city. A spiritual kingdom set on a hill to light the way, to show the way, to show Yahweh's way, to guard his word, teach his gospel. Revelation 17.9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, seven kingdoms, upon which the woman sits. This is the city on seven hills. Y'all know that one. That's Rome. No, 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 no. Seven kingdoms upon which the woman, the harlot, the religion, this is a religious kingdom that sits on top of seven kingdoms. She also sits upon the waters, doesn't she? She's a harlot, which means she's an apostate religious kingdom. This is the kingdom of Satan. This is the beast. It's very easy once you understand what the prophets are telling us. This is not hard. A tree. In the prophetic language, a tree is a person. If you're faithful, you bear fruit. If you're lawless, you're dried up. Psalm 52.8. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, house of Yahweh. I trust in the faithfulness of Yahweh forever and ever, or for Elohim forever and ever. I am like a green olive tree. A, I bear fruit. If I'm green, I bear fruit. Olive tree. Olive is connected to olive oil, which is the word of Yahweh, which is righteousness, which is Torah, which is also connected to, well, we'll get to that next week. Psalm 92, 12. The righteous person will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Palm trees, cedar trees. If you read the prophets, you'll see the tops of the cedars have been cut off. You know what he's talking about? It means the leaders have been killed. So the tall, the great cedars of Lebanon, those are the leaders of Lebanon, the leaders of the Philistines. Be careful with these words. Because tree in the prophetic language is a person. Figs. Faithful of Judah. This is Jeremiah 24, 5. This is what the Lord, what Yahweh, the Elohim, God of Israel says. Like these good figs, so I will regard the good, the good uh, as good the captives of Judah, whom I sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans, into Babylon. So your good figs, those are the remnant, the faithful remnant of Judah. 
are good figs. Okay. I'm going to get ahead of the game. This is what we're going to be doing next week. This is another little glimpse of what I'm going to do with you next week. You remember the passage where Jesus comes to the fig tree looking for figs and curses it because there are no figs? What is he doing there? What is he doing there? He's cursing the fig tree. Oh, no. No, no, that's the symbolism. That's the symbolic act. That's the physical act. He's cursing the house of Judah in the Old Covenant. What? Mm. Figs are the good remnant, the faithful remnant of the house of Judah, the captives of Judah. That's a fig right there. Jeremiah 24 or 5. That doesn't change. And it's a tree. So those are the good people, right, of the house of Judah. Well, there were none. The tree had no fruit. It was to be expected because he was out of season, but that wasn't the point. The point was from now on, you will bear no more fruit. In other words, they will remain faithful according to the old covenant of Moses, but they will not grow. The Jewish religion will not prosper because there's a new covenant in place. He's about to establish the new covenant. What he's telling them is the old covenant is done away. Not the Torah. The covenant has been replaced. That's what's going on in that passage. And what happens to the tree? It dries up. What is a dried up tree? Unfruitful, spiritually dead, vacant. So jump to Ezekiel 37. These dry bones. Dry means spiritually dead. There's no spiritual, there's no water, there's no gospel there. Bones. This dry bones is not necessarily everybody in the grave like people think. That's the spiritually dead house of Judah will come back to life and be rejoined to the stick of Joseph. That started when Yeshua was alive the first time on earth and the Jews were converting over to be his disciples under the new covenant. It has not yet finished. That is an ongoing prophecy in Ezekiel 37. All you have to do is learn the prophetic language, and this stuff is easy peasy. But you got to think like a prophet. That takes time, dedication, study, and prayer. There's no substitute for study. Much of the prophetic language only comes to you after you've studied it for a while. You have to immerse yourself in it until you start acquiring some of the cultural thinking from which the original prophecy came. There's no substitute for this. Okay? Next week, I'm going to go over a lot of these things in the scripture for you. Like what we just did with the fig tree. Some of the things that are the hardest for people are not that difficult once you understand the symbology that's in them, the prophetic symbolism. So what we're going to have for next week is a homework assignment for part three next week. I want you to just read through the charts on the biblical symbolism in your homework. That's easy, folks. We're just going to pop over here to the homework, the road to concord.com. You're going to scroll down until you come to these two right here. The first two, it says useful internet sources, Bible symbols and biblical symbol chart. The Bible symbols is going to be this page right here. Bible symbols it tells you how to use it up here at the top. Over here, you can search for a certain word if you want. Over here, it'll give you the word, like one or first. Gives you the symbolic definition. 
And this is really cool because all you have to do is hover over the passage where it gives you the meanings and it pops the passage up. It's using the King James, but that's still fine. You can go translate it into another translation if you want, but it gives you this like um, 70, the entire world, uh, 880. This is the numerical air, spirit of piety on false theories, Ephesians. It says, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in children of disobedience. So air, who's the prince of the air? Satan. Children of disobedience are his, his, his children. Those are his spiritual children. Lawlessness. This will give you the symbolic meaning of air. Now, these are symbolic meanings. This is not necessarily prophetic. Okay? If you see where the prophet is specifically defining them, then yes, you're dealing with prophecy. But they go hand in hand. Remember, the prophets use them. And then this is the other chart I told you. This is the biblical symbol chart. You just find the symbol that you're interested in, and you, and you can just click on it like a lamp, and it'll take you down here. Lamps represent the Holy Scriptures. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, Psalms 119, 105. Then it gives you a little description. All of the virgins had the Bible in some light therefrom when the Lord returned. Even while the Bible was clothed in the sackcloth of the dead language during the Dark Ages, there was enough truth given in the virgins for the Lord to consider them faithful from that era. But this parable is speaking of the time of the Lord's second advent. This is the, the ten virgins. There's more going on there in those parables too. So I want you to go through those two charts between now and next week. Because if you haven't, when I start going through very specific pieces of the prophetic language and showing you how it flows and how it follows and how easy it is to understand. Once you know how the prophets are using these words and terms, you're not going to know them. And we're not going to have time to go back and prove to you that this is what these things mean. Now, both of those charts are not always in agreement with each other. Different believers have put them together. I also know that the, the one I favor is the one you can hover over and see the, you know, the first one I showed you. I like that one, but sometimes it doesn't have, the connections you need, you got to go to the other chart. And sometimes there are connections that they left out, but that's okay. This will give you the idea. And th this, this will give you a start down that road of starting to think like a prophet or the people who are studying and listening to the prophets. Okay. That's what I need you to do. You're going to have to spend some time with this. If nothing else, go through that first chart where you can hover over the passages and scroll down the symbols that are most interesting to you and read over some of those passages and, and convince yourself, not me, convince yourself that these things do have a meaning of themselves, meaning all unto themselves. And especially where you're dealing like with beasts and um, mountains and hills and, and uh, harlots, those are specific to the prophets. And the prophets define them and tell you what they mean. And they, as far as I'm aware, as far as I've been, I've been at this now for 20 something years, the prophets never contradict each other's meaning. Sometimes they'll add on to it. They never contradict each other's meaning. And I got a little newsflash for you folks. Jesus uses the prophetic language a lot. All of his parables. Well, those are just nice teaching stories. They're all prophecy. What? All of the parables are prophetic. Did you know that? Every one of them, there are at least three layers to the parables. The bottom layer that I'm aware of is usually prophetic in nature. 
very important. Just like we're going to have to look at the blessings of Jacob's sons, his 12 sons. The blessing of Joseph is huge for the people who don't think that there are two houses of, of the Hebrew people, the house of Israel and the house of Jeremiah, I mean of Judah rather, as explained in Jeremiah. A lot of believers don't see the two houses. Go read the blessing of Joseph. It's right there. It, it, it's right in the blessing of Joseph, both when he crosses his arms and when he blesses him right before he dies. It's in the it's in the blessing. The fact that there's going to be two houses is right there in the blessings. If you understand prophecy. If you don't, it won't mean anything to you. Or it won't mean what it should. But this is not difficult. All it means is you got to spend a little time learning how the prophets talk. That's it. That's it. So if we don't have any questions on the board, that's where we're going to wrap for today. Trying to do this in slower chunks, give you time to digest this. Um, next week, we're going to go over some longer pieces of it. And then the week after that, we'll wrap everything up and we'll show you, in some cases, it's not just the passages we're going to read. It's the theme. So next week, I'm going to go through passages and help you decipher them. And then the last week, we're going to go through um, chunks of concept that run through your scriptures that are all prophetic in nature. And you'll see how all of this ties together. We got anything up, Charlie? Anything you want to add today? No, you uh, set off a few fireflies for me, though. So <laughs> we're good, this guys. Good stuff. All right. Um, real quick, I will hopefully by the end of March be back to at least two days a week or every other week or whatever. But the goal is again somewhere in May to be back to three days a week, and then that's where we'll stay for as as long as I can manage to keep it going, I miss it just as much as y'all do. But at the same time, yesterday was a big blessing to me. It it was a relief. It was relaxing. I got a lot of work done for my business. It should pay off by Friday. I'll keep you posted. Otherwise, we love each and every one of you. We thank you for being here. Um, I won't tell you necessarily to share the show right now, but you know what? You've got 361 archives now that you can share. See if you can't get some more people interested in us. When we come back, we're going to be a little bit more focused, a little bit less of the yuck, yuck, and less of the scary Monday, you know, manic Monday stuff. Um, we, we won't be totally gone from it, but we're going to be a little bit more focused on teaching. Uh, some of the, one of the emails I got was just perfect. Um, he used a phrase in there, recage my gyro. If you're not military, that probably won't mean a whole lot to you, but I know Charlie understood exactly what he was saying. And yes, this sabbatical helped me recage my gyros, um, but refocus when we come back. But we are going to come back to more regular. I promise. That's that's the goal. Until then, y'all stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Do your homework. And we will see you. If we don't see you on Sabbath, we'll see you next Wednesday. Y'all take care. Oh. Make sure you're following the blog page and or the Facebook page so that I can give you updates and announcements if and when we need to make them. Okay. Blog yep. page, rumble, Facebook page. You can if find you us. Questions, Road to Concord. We, you have email too. Yep. Questions. We have email. You can stay in touch with us. So otherwise just a sabbatical, not going bye-bye. Y'all take care and stay safe. We'll see you later.